Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska named three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like, how is Moby connected with the CIA? And did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes? And seeing which band I can get to reunite? Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. Alex Jones here with just an over-the-top important report. What's hard about this story is that it's so crazy and no one is reporting on it. We see Beyonce do these anti-cop, you know, riot videos, and we see her out with a new video with little girls following her, skipping as she beats up cars and blows things up, uh, you know, goes crazy with a baseball bat. And then you understand that the Super Bowl on Fox and Viacom MTV are the most establishment organs there are, and admittedly the most hooked up with the CIA. I mean, it's getting crazier and crazier. And then I know for a fact Beyonce and Viacom and her record label and all of it are hooked into this. In case you don't recognize that voice, that is Alex Jones. And if you don't recognize that name, God, I am jealous of the life you have. Because Alex Jones is a troll, and a conspiracy theorist, a crackpot, a huckster, the host of a disturbingly popular radio show called The Alex Jones Show, and the figurehead of an equally popular website called InfoWars that claims to be, quote, unquote, a news site. But everything you really need to know about Alex Jones, I feel like, can be assessed from that previous quote, where he claims that a film made to accompany Beyonce's Lemonade album is proof that she's working for the CIA to help start a race war. And then she sits there with this rage, you know, great actress, you know, police, you're the enemy of my people, and baseball bats and everything. So young people go out, act like maniacs, it's happening, and try to start a race war in this country. Uh... <laughs> uh... In the interest of our collective sanity we're going to choose to laugh about this today not go off into the wormhole of what this person specifically reflects in our society i mean if i could i'd play the curb your enthusiasm theme under every single one of these alex jones quotes but we don't have that kind of podcast money yet instead I start today's episode with these quotes from this person because it is a slice, albeit an extreme slice, of the way a large part of our society reacted to Beyonce's visual album, Lemonade. For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, 
In 2016, Beyonce debuted a 65-minute film to accompany the release of her album, Lemonade. On the surface, it's a film and an album about confronting and processing her husband Jay-Z's very public infidelity. But wrapped in that framework, both pieces examine much larger issues of what it means to be black and what it means to be a woman in America. By itself, it is a great record. But the film really elevates it. It's a beautiful collage of Southern Gothic imagery and Afro-Cuban spiritual traditions all filtered through a contemporary pop electricity. The soundtrack by Beyonce reading the poetry of Orson Shire and, of course, the music of the album. It's essentially one great big music video for the entire album. Or as she put it, a visual album. I remember watching this the night that it came out in my buddy Miles' apartment in Minneapolis. I was still living there at the time, and it was two days after Prince had died. And the whole city was in the middle of this three-day-long vigil, dance party, memorial service for his life. Everyone was exhausted in a pretty emotionally raw place. We all sat on the hardwood floor in silence, because even though Miles had moved in a few months before, he still didn't have any furniture. And over the course of the 65 minutes of that film, we really only spoke in gasps and woes and dams. And when it finished, all the smokers lit cigarettes, all the drinkers poured another round. Several folks did both. It was a profoundly moving moment. You know what didn't happen when the film ended? A fucking race war. In fact, in the city perhaps at its most raw, from two days of non-stop dancing, indulgence, and mourning, in the honor of Prince, the streets were full, packed to the gills of every race, color, and creed, partying like it's 1999 without incident, without violence, and without Civil War Part Two. But if you looked at the great cultural outrage machine in the days that followed, You'd have thought Beyonce had armed the Bayhive and fired on Fort Sumner. Well, not everyone was calling her a CIA plant like Alex Jones. The Drudge Report called her an urban terrorist. Breitbart called it propaganda. Sean Hannity on Fox News called her a bad role model. Glenn Beck's site, The Blaze, featured a column that led with the headline, Beyonce is destroying your daughter, not empowering her. <laughs> I mean, this seems insane now because it was insane at the time I mean, the film certainly confronts real serious political and social issues one of the most moving moments is during the song forward a fantastic duet she performs with james blake and we see the mothers of trayvon martin michael brown and eric garner all holding up pictures of their sons their sons who were all shot by police it's a really striking part of the film presented without comment, without explanation. And in fact, if you didn't know who those people were, you would never know the cultural significance of the scenes because it's not spelled out for you. It, like the rest of the entire film, is a collage of images without a traditional linear narrative, set to a piece of music that allows those images to transcend themselves and in turn allows the viewer to apply their own significance to what they're watching. So when I watched the video for Hold Up, 
And I see Beyonce walking down the street with a baseball bat, smashing everything in sight with a smile on her face while she sings about Jay-Z's cheating ass. I see a very classic, beautiful Hollywood revenge fantasy. Whereas Alex Jones sees... Blowing stuff up, uh, beating everything up, smashing vehicles, and it's all about men. First it's hate the cops in the last video. Now it's the ultimate feminist video being hailed. She just hates men and runs around with a crazed look on her face, attacking everything. Look at the look on her face in the whole anti-police deal. This is how she ran around like, you just deal with the cops, they're the enemy, and then it'll fix everything. And then she's funded by the very government and the very platform, the very establishment system puts her out there. What in God's name is he talking about? This is not a call to take up arms against the police. It's not some cunning CIA psychic weapon. It's an homage to singing in the rain. It's Dolly Parton in 9 to 5 daydreaming about lassoing and hog-tying her sexist-ass boss. Hey, let me tell you. She does not look crazed. She looks gorgeous. Whew. But yet, a huge part of America found this to be offensive. They saw secret messages in that movie. They considered this an affront on their sensibilities and an attack on the very foundation of our country. I bring all this up, Beyonce, Alex Jones, all of it, to provide a contemporary connection to a piece of American history. Because over 50 years before this, a full half century before Beyonce was basically being accused of treason set to 808 drums, Simon and Garfunkel were kicking up the exact same hornet's nest with a visual album of their own. Songs of America, the 1969 television special that they made with Charles Grodin to accompany the release of their album, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And that television special and the controversy it caused is what we're here to discuss today. For Consequence Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this is The Opus. In 1968, Simon and Garfunkel were out in Los Angeles working on Bridge Over Troubled Water, and they met with some television executives from CBS who presented them with an idea. Create a television special to broadcast on CBS and debut their new album. This was a golden era for musicians making TV specials. I mean, that same year, Elvis made his famous 1968 comeback special from Vegas. You know, the one shot in the round with the black leather suit where he still looks young and handsome and sweaty. So sweaty. Needless to say, Simon and Garfunkel did say yes to the idea of a television special, and they did not don leather jumpsuits and head out to Vegas to film theirs. Instead, they went in a very different direction. Around that same time, they met with the actor Charles Grodin. They all hit it off. And somehow he managed to talk his way into being the director of this TV special. At the time, his previous experience as a writer and director for television was that he 
and I'm quoting him here now, had been fired three times over a six-week period from Candid Camera. And yet, that was the team. Simon Garfunkel and uh, failed comedy writer Charles Grodin, that was the team that would make Songs of America and managed to piss off half of America in the process. I get slandered. Grodin had a very simple but altogether new idea for the TV special. Instead of some artificial, canned live performance like Elvis made in 1968 or Sonny and Cher would make a career out of a few years later, he'd follow the guys around while they toured and record a bridge over troubled water and make the film a collage of that footage as well as segments where the audience would get to hear the new songs from the album set to images and film of the things that inspired Paul Simon's lyrics. You know, like a visual album, as it were. Seems simple enough, right? So they wrote it all down in the script, just like a real director would. What shots would go where and with what music, what they would include. They handed it all over to their main sponsor, the company that was paying for the whole thing, AT&T. AT&T looked at the script, gave it the go-ahead, and off they went. Much like Beyonce filling her visual album up, with scenes connected to her life and the things that inspired her songs. Simon and Garfunkel and Grodin did much the same. The special opens with the song America, off the previous album Bookends. So we watch majestic scenes of America's natural beauty fill the screen. A little bit later, after some funny candid moments between Paul and Artie discussing Beethoven, the viewers would hear so long Frank Lloyd Wright, as we watch a collage of images hearkening back to simpler times. Images from Simon and Garfunkel's youth, the Lone Ranger, Howdy Doody, Babe Ruth rounding the bases, Lenny Bruce, and Harry Truman celebrating his election. And up to this point, we have a really beautiful piece of Americana. Nostalgia set to music. Something everybody can agree is quite nice. But it's at the 12-minute mark that things start to turn. And the film takes on a more complex tone. As we hear a crowd singing, we've got high hopes. We watch the Truman presidential election celebration blend into a young JFK on the presidential campaign trail. And it is at that exact moment where we see the smiling face of a president that had been killed on film only six years before. It's right then that millions of Americans would hear, for the very first time, the opening piano notes of the song, Bridge Over Troubled Water. That's how it debuted. On national television, it is powerful to watch, even now, over 50 years later. And as the song progresses, we see clips of Robert Kennedy, and then Martin Luther King Jr. And then we start to see a theme emerging. And though nothing is explicit, nothing is violent, and nothing is even explained or spelled out, the combination of that incredible song and the images of those assassinated American leaders transcends. And the viewer can't help but feel that what they are watching is significant. When you're weary 
Even though Bridge Over Troubled Water, the song's lyrics are, like Paul Simon said, are simplistic. There's a profundity behind them. This is my friend Steve Marsh. He's not only a really talented freelance cultural reporter with bylines like GQ, Esquire, and Pitchfork, he's also one of my favorite people to talk to in the world. And coincidentally, happened to be there with me that night when I watched Lemonade for the first time. Uh, just because of the emotion in Art's voice and the gospel piano part. And then if you layer the funeral train footage over that, it, it, it feels super profound. It, and it just, it adds up to, to something way bigger than, you know, a few, a few 30 something screwing around in a studio in a television studio. You know? And this, this is where we have that moment where two cultural paths divert. Like that moment in Lemonade, or I saw Singing in the Rain meets Hollywood revenge fantasy, and Alex Jones saw the start of a race war. Both parties looking at the exact same set of images and seeing two totally different things. Because when Simon and Garfunkel made this film with Charles Grodin, they didn't think of it as some revolutionary act. They didn't even see it as political. They were art school kids, making a collage, playing around. Much the same way they played around in the studio with Roy Halley, which we discussed in episode one. Unfortunately, that is not how their sponsor AT&T saw it. And then AT&T, the, the guys like, um, like, how dare you use our money to sell your ideology to America? And Charles Grodin is like, what's my ideology? What do you mean? <laughs> and, and he's like, the humanistic one. You're the humanistic ideology. And he's like, People are against that. <laughs> you know, he's like, you're goddamn right. AT&T looks at these sets of images and says, this isn't politically balanced. These are all Democrats. Whereas Simon and Garfunkel and Groden look at them and they don't see Democrats. They just see assassinated people. Both parties looking at the exact same film and seeing two totally different things. There's this moment where the audience hears Coretta Scott King talking about how poverty is violence. And AT&T told Groden that they needed to turn the volume down on her. When Groden asked how low, AT&T said, inaudible. <laughs> Needless to say, that is about where everything went off the rails. Simon and Garfunkel refused to make any changes. And AT&T pulled out as the main sponsor. Now, even though AT&T had already paid to make the film, they still needed to find a sponsor to pay for the airtime. Fortunately, they found support from the Alberto Culver Company makers of the famous VO5 line of hair care products. And a special made it on the air. Now, as blindsided as Simon and Garfunkel may have been by AT&T's reaction to Songs of America, it was nothing compared to America's reaction. You have to remember, back then there were only three TV channels. So if something you made, made it on the air at primetime, when all of America was sitting down to watch you pretty much had a one in three chance that they're going to be watching you. And America did tune in. At first. Till right around that 12-minute mark. 
just as we're starting to watch the RFK funeral procession footage, a full one million people either turned off the TV or changed the channel to watch a Peggy Fleming ice skating special. One million people. And it wasn't that people were bored. They were offended. They were pissed. Simon and Garfunkel received death threats. And this isn't like today in this beautiful age of social media where you can harass and threaten your favorite stars instantly from your phone. No, no, no. Back then, you had to get paper. You had to get a pen. You had to physically write out your threats. And then put them in an envelope. Find out where to mail the damn thing, which honestly, I have no idea how anyone to do that. And then you pay for a stamp, and you take it to the post office, and you hand it over to your local postman if you wanted to threaten some long-haired musician with death after they force you to watch their visual album. Jesus. Can you imagine being that mad? (laughs) People were actually that mad. Because what Simon and Garfunkel saw as a collage of collective American experiences set to their music, a huge part of the country saw as an ideology being forced upon them. There's so much concern about who we give bandwidth to now, with literally hundreds and hundreds of television channels out there. Can you imagine how that's all heightened when there's only three television channels? How powerful that bandwidth is. How much it all means. And how heightened everyone is coming on the tail end of such a turbulent decade like the 1960s. I don't think Simon and Garfunkel and Charles Grodin fully appreciated or understood any of that when they made Songs of America. I don't think Beyonce was intending to divide. And I don't think I don't think Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel and Charles Grodin were intending to divide. But the bridge over troubled water comes out in 1970. Right. The 60s are over. We're in the middle of a war. The 68 election was traumatizing. In the same way that when Trump won in 2016, it was such a shock, you know, a lot of people didn't think it could happen. I don't think, I don't even think he thought it could happen, but like, it's this, it's this kind of time of, my God, like, what is reality? You know, like the small joke they make at the beginning of the movie where uh, it's like, well, there's another thing coming up on its 200th birthday and it's America. And Paul's like, do you think we'll make it? It's like that feeling of, oh my God, what's next? You know, how long is this going to last? And then you release a bunch of pop songs into that and people attach their huge anxieties to these soothing songs. You know, these songs take on more, uh, more profundity than, um, than even the uh, artists intended. This cultural stuff, the meaning that we bring to it is, is way bigger than the actual artifact, right? It, it's, it's what everybody else is walking into the arena with their emotions and what they're thinking about, and they attach profundity onto this kind of simple pop song. That's what happens, right? Like, it's like we're deluding ourselves. And that, like, we do that with rock and roll and uh, hip-hop and everything all the time. The simplest stuff... Uh, allows the the most kind of personal weight to be put on it.
I showed Songs of America to two visual artists I really admire. Eric Carlson and Aaron Anderson are both accomplished artists and designers in their own right. They often work as a duo as well. Most recently and famously, they created several videos for the latest Bon Iver release, as well as all of the album artwork and design. And they even created visuals uh, to project for a dance piece set to Bon Iver's music. What I love about their work and why I wanted to show this film to them is that same powerful concept we've discussed with Beyonce's Lemonade and Songs of America, where images and music combine to create something more significant than the sum of the parts. This is the core of their own work. They're so good at taking weird, disparate elements of culture, iconography, combining and manipulating it to create some inexplicable greater meaning. Their work's like magic to me, like voodoo. I thought of them immediately the first time I watched Songs of America. Well, having just watched that, that video piece where the aesthetic is familiar, you know, 50 years later. We're starting off with Eric Carlson here. But it still feels like really beautiful and artful and it's on film and it still feels super real. Obviously, when it came out 50 years ago, Songs for America had significant power. But uh, watching it 50 years later now, does it still maintain that power for you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's close to things that, that we're actually currently speaking on in our studio. And some of the stuff we're working on, like watching it felt very, I don't know, I, I think that... That idea and that approach is still breathing, for sure. Hmm. What is it about that approach that makes it so impactful? The power of putting things in context of, of other things. None of the footage in the video in itself is explicit. It's Martin Luther King and JFK's funeral, so on and so forth. But something about the sequence that you experience these images, it's not saying anything inherently fucked up but it opens up a space for people to have to ask big questions. Hmm. And can you talk about a piece or a part of your own work where you guys are utilizing this same approach? The visuals for the dance performance. And this is Aaron Anderson. They were sort of constructed out of shards of trash or like, you know, just crap you'd find on the internet. Stuff that nobody would really pay attention to. Or, and then by piling them together, you make something that's epic and meaningful and like... Or like in the, the Hey Ma lyric video off the I.I. album, it's like all made of home video footage from Justin Vernon's family and his father shooting this stuff on some old digital camcorder. And it's like them as children. And it's a lot of his, whatever family, so on and so forth. There's this one section, there's like kind of an inter instrumental bridge part of the song. This one single shot of kids playing in this pond, splashing each other and like a dog barking at the side of the pond. But because the music is in this chaotic form and it's after all this kind of deeply sentimental experience, you get to that point with that music and that shot where it's, you know, it's a fun shot, kids playing, but like the way it feels in that video is somehow so twisted, perhaps sinister or scary. And you see the violence of it and this play violence, but also kids kind of going at it um, where you might 
not so readily pick up on that violence if you were just looking at it, you know, like family slideshow, but put in that context, like the sinister nature is becomes present. Uh, and when that same shot appears 30 seconds earlier, not on that chaotic bridge part, it takes on a totally different meaning. Sure, yeah, yeah. Now, if it was the first shot, it's totally playing it. Huh? That's what's so powerful about this film. It's these songs with those images that can move one half of the country to tears and make the other half want to riot. Any artist can only dream to create something that does that. Because there's no worse fate than to make a piece of art that makes people feel nothing. The goal with great pop music is to make everyone feel something. Whether it's Beyonce looking smashing while smashing in a car window or young JFK smiling in a crowd on the campaign trail as the piano from Bridge Over Troubled Water rises up underneath him. Great work takes on a greater significance because it's strong enough to leave room for us to bring our own lives in and make the universal personal. And this is why Bridge Over Troubled Water has been covered so many times. There's something about it that's so much greater than the sum of its parts. And that is what we're going to explore next week. How the parts of this album, and the time of its release, and so many other factors all coincide to make a great album take on a greater meaning and ultimately make its mark as a real turning point in American popular culture. But for now, I want to thank my guests, Steve Marsh, Eric Carlson, and Aaron Anderson. Go check out all their work. Steve is really one of my favorite thinkers in America. Find his writing and read it. You'll love it. Do yourselves a favor. Go check out Eric and Aaron's work with Bonnie Vare. It's really incredible. At the very least, watch that lyric video for Hey Ma so you can see the moment when the one shot of the kids playing becomes downright sinister. It's great. You can still find copies of Songs of America on DVD, but if you're like me and you don't use them things anymore, you can rent it for cheap on Amazon anytime. It's totally worth a watch. comes with a great documentary at the end about the making of the album, too. Lots and lots of great stuff in there. If you haven't already gone over to consequencesound.net, checked out the contest they're running, you should. You can enter to win the entire Simon and Garfunkel catalog on vinyl. That would look real sweet on your bookshelf. But that's all for now. As always, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends. Be sure to like, subscribe all that stuff the more that y'all do that stuff the more likely it is that I get to keep making this stuff for y'all until then I'll see you next week final episode of season 7 Simon and Garfunkel Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy Recordings I'm your host Andy Bothwell and this is The Opus
Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. Keep the music flowing. We'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast.